Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Has this ever happened to you? Sometimes you decide to do something and then happily, God's providence seems to keep telling you, yes, that was a good decision. Yes, I want you to do that. And he just keeps lining everything up and making you feel like what I decided to do, yeah, 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 that's exactly what God wanted me to be doing at this point in time. Happily, that happened to me uh, this week. This is the final sermon in this short series on evangelism. The sermon this morning is uh, more topical. Instead of taking one text and, and laying it out, this is sort of a, an approach of um, uh, how to put a whole bunch of scriptures together to kind of solve a problem. And the, the issue this morning is the issue of awkward questions. I, as we conclude this sermon on evangelism, what I really want to do is help you to push past that sort of polite barrier or that sort of fearful trepidation that those awkward questions will stop you from sharing the gospel. And in God's providence, uh, the invitation came uh, actually months ago, but this week as I was preparing this message was the week that I got to do something that I really, I can't remember the last time I got to do this, and it was so fun. I was asked to give a lecture, 30-minute lecture and 30-minute Q&A to answer the question, what is Christianity and what is a church? And I was asked to do that at a local college, not a Christian college. I think the guy who got me the invitation is here, but I don't want to say his name because I don't want him to get fired. And uh, so this was to the faculty and staff. They were paid to be there kind of as a professional development thing. And um, for whatever reason, the topic of Christianity was one that they wanted to hear or some of them wanted to hear about. So, you know, I, I spent the day there on Wednesday and it was so fun. I laid out what Christianity is to a mixed audience. I'm sure several of the people there were believers as I talked to them after, but I know that many of them were not. And uh, I got my share of awkward questions in the Q&A time and also afterwards as I talked to people at like the questions that you would guess would come up, came up. I got asked about UFOs. Is there biblical evidence for UFOs? (laughs) I got asked who I voted for in the last election. I was a little coy about that one. Um, uh, Of course, questions about sexuality, marriage, uh, questions about, you know, if there's so many different versions of the Bible and so many different versions of Christianity, how do you know which one's right? And I, I don't know if I, I guess just to repeat like the first minute of my talk in this room with all these people that I don't know them and they don't know me, I just said, I, I've been asked to talk to you for half an hour and I want you to know that I'm going to, in this half an hour, say things that you disagree with. And I want you to know that it's okay with me that you disagree with me. And I hope it's okay with you that I disagree with you. I just said I'm a big believer in the fact that we got to recapture the ability to accept each other without agreeing with each other. For some reason, we sort of feel like we have to agree with each other about everything in order to accept each other. And I just think that's 
dumb and impossible. As human beings, we can accept each other, we can love each other, we can really agree that each other are decent human beings that we want to enjoy and spend time with, even if we have fundamental disagreements about this or that or the other thing. And um, I want to help you uh, overcome that fear of disagreeing and that fear of those awkward questions. And so I want to take that as our topic and just sort of see how scripture gives us some hints and some clues and some directions of where to go. So the first scripture that I'd like to read is in Matthew 28 about the authority of Jesus. Matthew 28 verses uh, 18 through 20. And as we read God's word, let's once again bow and ask God's help. Gracious Heavenly Father, apart from the presence of your Holy Spirit here with us, the very same Spirit who inspired this infallible word, without that Spirit, our study of this word would itself be vain and empty. So we pray that by the presence and power of your spirit, you might open our minds and open our hearts and make us supernaturally willing to understand and obey your word. Make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The authority of Jesus is primary. And if the authority of Jesus is what it is, and the authority of Jesus is what it is, if the authority of Jesus is primary, and if the authority of Jesus is what it is, then disagreement is inevitable. And as we approach evangelism and as we approach awkward questions, I want us to learn how to accept disagreement, not as a disaster, but as a necessary, even temporarily helpful part of the process. Disagreement is not disaster. In fact, everybody gets disagreed with. Everybody gets disagreed with all the time. At least they do in healthy conversations. Jesus says here that all authority belongs to him. It is the authority of Jesus that sends us out into our mission of evangelism. It's not the invitation of the world or the nice uh, introduction that the world gives us and, and, and the nice way that the world asks us to come and tell them things that they disagree with that sends us on our mission to evangelism. It's the authority of Jesus. It's the authority of Jesus as the risen Lord and Savior that gives validity to our ministry of evangelism. It's his authority as the one who has broken the power of death. And it's his authority to forgive sins, to change lives, to set the captive free, that give us confidence in evangelism. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. 
And if that's the case, then I guess I just want to say, don't look at disagreement as a disaster or arguing as necessarily a bad thing. Don't be afraid to disagree because Jesus has told us to go and to make disciples of Jesus and to teach all that Jesus has taught. So what the world needs now, in addition to love, sweet love, what the world needs now is a declaration of the authoritative teaching of Jesus so that the world can accept that or reject it, so that they can agree with it or disagree with it, but it at least needs to be clear enough so that we can see and hear what it is. But everybody walks in such lockstep with sort of this worldly flabby definition of Jesus and love that we're not even clear enough about the authority of Jesus so that those who are not willing to submit to the authority of Jesus can't even reject the authority of Jesus. Let's just be clear enough and not afraid of disagreeing enough that we can really lay it out clearly because just uh, speaking with a very broad brush, you know, one of, the, one of the largest themes in all of Scripture, I mean, every one of the 66 books of the Scripture, one of the largest themes is the theme of antithesis, difference. In the creation, God makes the land and the sea. God makes the night and the day. God makes the man and the woman. And then as we move away even from creational categories and into the new creation or, or salvation categories, this antithesis is inescapable. There are those who believe and those who are unbelieving. There are those who are saved and there are those who are lost. There are those who are dead and those who are alive. Those who are children of darkness and those who are children of light. According to Matthew 28, those who have been baptized as believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and those who are yet unbaptized. Those who have been taught to observe all that Jesus has commanded, and those who have not been taught and who are not active in observing all that Jesus has commanded. The goats and the sheep, hell or heaven, blind or seeing, wise or foolish, with God or without God, under wrath or under grace. The Bible is constantly making the point that there is a difference between believing and unbelieving. And if we're afraid of disagreement, then we'll never be bold enough to make that point. We're not all the, the, exactly the same. All lifestyles are not equal. Every perspective is not equal. We need to have the courage to lay this out with clarity because Jesus says that all authority belongs to him and this is in fact our calling and our mission. So are you saying that Jesus is the only way to be saved? I was asked that relatively awkward question this week when I had this chance to give this lecture on Christianity. You know, and I simply tried to say, well, Jesus says in John 14 and verse 6 that he is the only way of salvation. In his incarnation, he has disclosed to us the way of salvation. And it, it may seem offensive to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation, but it's, it's not only insulting to Jesus, but it's insulting to, if I was talking with a, 
uh, if, if, if I'm talking with a, a Muslim, I would be insulting Islam if I insisted, oh no, all ways of salvation are the same. A faithful Muslim doesn't agree with that. If I was talking to a faithful atheist, there's an oxymoron for you, you know, and I was to say, well, all ways of salvation are the same. Well, for some reason, that atheist believes that atheism is superior to theism. It sort of, it, it, it infantilizes everyone to, to just say, well, pretend that we agree and everything's all the same. Let's not insult one another like that. Let's just be clear. It's patronizing to pretend that we agree when we don't. Now, we have to figure out how to disagree gently. We have to figure out how to disagree humanely. We have to figure out how to disagree in a Christ-like and loving way. But let's be clear about it. Everything's not uh, exactly the same. So I guess I'm just saying, expect disagreement and expect strong reactions. And if you get a strong reaction, don't run away from it. If you get a strong reaction, maybe that's the presence of the Spirit of God. The voice of Jesus sounds clear and absolute. Listen to these references. Acts 19, verse 23. And about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the preaching of the way. Acts 21, verse 30. And all the city was aroused at the preaching of the gospel. Acts 23, verse 7. And as he said this, there arose a great dissension within the crowd. Don't be surprised by these reactions. In fact, nothing good happens without such reactions. Don't, don't, angle to avoid any reaction, you know, just be clear and don't be afraid to ruffle some feathers and even hurt some feelings. Can we just say this? Human feelings are not God. There is something, there is someone who is worthy of all glory and honor and power but it's not my feelings that are worthy of all glory and honor and power. It's not your feelings. It's Jesus. And if we're going to speak the truth in love, every now and then we will feel awkward about it or the people to whom we're speaking the truth will feel bad about it. When you figure out how to do that without insulting them, certainly without being mean toward them, there's an appropriate gentleness. Never forget 1 Peter um, chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16 is a very important verse to keep in mind. 1 Peter 3, verses uh, 14 to 16 say, But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Hebrews, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 15, do this with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you for your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So we want to be able to disagree. We want to be able to even pinch the person that we're talking to, their feelings a little bit, but we want to do so with gentleness, with consideration. I would like people to feel uh, good around me. But if I always let the feelings of the people around me control what I do and say and don't do and don't say, 
then I'm not submitting to the ultimate authority of Jesus. Other people's feelings are not worthy of all glory and honor and power, but Jesus is. So find a way to speak with gentleness and consideration, but also truthfully. The fact is, we all need our perspective poked from time to time. I do. We all need to have our feelings hurt from time to time. I know I do. We all do. Because the mind's oldest trick is convincing itself of its rightness. And you will never get out of that dead end unless someone with a different point of view comes and pokes into your self-protective mental structure. The mind's oldest argument is to convince itself of the unassailability of what it happens to believe. And so it's healthy to disagree and to ask some awkward questions and to get in there. It's a good, it's a good thing because we all need our perspective poked and prodded because everybody has a perspective that may be partly right, partly wrong. You know the old thing about perspective with a 16-year-old daughter who hollers out into the living room, has anybody seen my sweater? And her father responds, you mean the sweater that cost me 55 bucks? And her sister responds, you mean the sweater you've never let me borrow? And her little brother responds, you mean the sweater that makes you look fat? Her grandma is there and her grandmother says, do you mean that sweater that is way too modern and way too immodest? And her mom says, oh, do you mean the sweater that needs to be washed in cold water and hung out to dry and takes all this work? And she says, yeah, that sweater. We all have our perspective about what it is we're talking about, but we all need our perspective poked and prodded. Now, they were all talking about one sweater. So just to state this again, Jesus is the truth. This does not mean that there is no true truth. There's only your truth and my truth. This doesn't mean that uh, there's no true truth, but this does mean that every person will be opinionated and defensive and easily offended when their version of things gets poked and prodded. But that is a good thing, not a bad thing. We get our perspective braided up tighter than barbed wire. And we need someone to come along with clippers. This is the divine set of clippers that we can poke through and prod through those, those barriers that are in the way. Listen to the alternative perspectives on Jesus that are present right at the beginning of the ministry of the apostles in Acts 4. I'm reading from Acts 4, verses 8 through 12. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the assembled crowd, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this man been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
There's a lot going on in that, in that passage, but I'm, I'm just saying, at least let's see that in that passage, the, the Peter who's speaking says, you all have a perspective about Jesus and your perspective about Jesus needs to change because you rejected him. He's not bowing down and saying everyone has their own truth about Jesus, but he is acknowledging that there's a perspective about Jesus that needs to be poked and prodded and challenged. Everybody starts from their own perspective and everybody needs that perspective to be challenged and disagreed with or else we'll never learn and grow. I, I love uh, to question what the person I'm talking to means about love because I've never found a person who has said uh, love is an unimportant part of human existence. Everybody believes that love is important but I'm a big believer in clarity. And so ask some more, well, what do you mean by love? Well, why, why, do you, why does love mean that to you? And get down and down and down into it. I think actually we need to have our very view of love demolished by the God who is love and then rebuilt. We need our view of love, even sometimes our view of sin, sometimes our view of salvation and righteousness to be poured out and then refilled by God himself who gives us the, the, the truth about these things. So don't run away from this disagreement and this uh, clashing of feelings and perspective, but instead move toward it. So how to handle awkward questions uh, in general. I'll give you, I realize I'm just sort of topically talking about a lot of things. For you compulsive note takers, here are four points. How to handle questions in general. You compulsive note takers, by the way, I accept you, I do not agree with you. I don't think notes are important. I think life change is. If somehow you can prove to me that your taking of notes helps your life to change, then that's fine. But I've seen a lot of people whose lives have changed and they didn't take notes. So there you go. So here's four, four points of how to handle questions in general. Number one, affirm a good question. Affirm a good question. <laughs> Just uh, affirm the person Who's asking it? Maybe say something like, wow. Um, not, why would you ask that question? <laughs> but, huh, you must, there must be some thinking, some history, some feeling, some passion behind that question. What is, what is it about you that makes you ask that question? And just get to know that human being as a human being. Whether they ever come to Christ or not, whether they ever come to church or not, they are created in the image of God and they are worthy of you sitting down and listening to them, listening to them. And when you affirm their question, I mean that you listen to them, why that would be a question to them. We're loving persons. We're not dumping data points. We're not winning arguments. We're loving human persons who are in front of us. So affirm that good question, affirm that person and, and use the question as an opportunity to get to know each other. That's the first thing, affirm a good question, affirm the person that asks it. Number two, uh, hopefully this goes without saying, admit that you don't have a perfect answer to every question. If your ability to be a faithful Christian depends on your ability to have a perfect answer to every question, it ain't never gonna happen. Admit that you don't have a perfect answer to every question. I mean, a, a lot of times it's good to say, well, I've got, a, I've got a little bit of an answer that I can give you, 
but I haven't worked that issue all the way out myself. If you want, I can get you some, you know, material from Christians that are smarter than me and that have spent longer working on that, but I don't have a perfect answer to it. Maybe you have, a, maybe you have an answer. Give them your answer, but be willing to admit that your answer is not perfect. It's not going to check every box. not going to answer every secondary question. Affirm a good question. Admit that you don't know everything. And then third, answer their question as best as you can with Scripture. Just give it a shot. Don't be afraid of failure. Answer their question as best as you can with Scripture. Even if your answer is mediocre, if you use Scripture, um, Holy Spirit does a pretty good job of batting cleanup even when we don't do that great. Answer the question as best as you can with Scripture. And then number four, always get back to Jesus. Always get back to Jesus. When I was asked a question this week about, well, if you're a Christian, who did you vote for in the last presidential election? You would, have, you would have laughed at the way I tap danced around that question. I never ended up saying who I voted for. <laughs> but I got it back to Jesus. I said, well, you know, I, I'll tell you this. I voted because Jesus says the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. And I just said, as a Jesus follower, the big thing to me about my vote is as a member of this community, I should vote to what I think will be the most loving toward my neighbors around me. Now, what you want to do probably is argue, you know, do the D's or the R's or the I's, I guess, or whoever we're talking about, you know, do their policies set that up better? And that's a, that's a long, wide-ranging argument. But the, the core of it is I, I have a conviction that I should show my love for God and my love for my neighbors in the way that I vote. You know, and then I talked, you know, try to get it back, 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 back to Jesus. Always get it back to Jesus. That's the point. Jesus is the point. And so, so often we miss the point and we just get stuck digging through all the weeds and all the gravel. A story is told about that worker in the Tennessee Valley Authority. Roosevelt started the TVA in 1933, the biggest, the biggest work project ever. And uh, as it is with a lot of governmental projects that, you know, tax money is funding, there's a, a huge problem with inefficiency and even with industrial theft. So this massive project and day after day after day, valuable tools are being stolen from the worksite. And in this particular spot in the Tennessee Valley, each night this worker would leave with a wheelbarrow full of gravel and the security guy at the gate would always stop him and search through the gravel for some of those valuable iron and steel tools that were constantly being stolen. Never found anything. Every night, the guy's filled with gravel, rolls it through every night. The security guy looks, doesn't find anything. So the story is told that several years later, after that work site was shut down and the security guard and the wheelbarrow guy were on different jobs, they actually ran into each other at a local tavern and the security guy said, what was the deal with that? How did you steal those tools in, in those wheelbarrows? And the worker replied, well, since you're asking and since uh, we're all done with the job and you can't get me in trouble now, my racket was stealing the wheelbarrows. 
Every night, the guard is just digging through the gravel, looking for the tools. And every night, the guy gets away with one, two, three, four, five, six, a dozen of these wheelbarrows, which was the very thing he was taking. What's the point? The point is that when it comes to awkward questions and and evangelism, don't get stuck digging through the gravel. If I get a question about sexuality, I'll answer it. Jesus said, In Matthew 19, that God created them male and female. The Bible says there are men and women. The Bible says that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman. And any and all sexual activity outside of that covenant is what the Bible calls sin. I I don't have a problem giving a clear answer to that question. But I can give that answer, and even if the person to whom I'm talking disagrees with that answer, I myself will accept that person in my answer and try to continue a relationship of love and mutual respect. Not a relationship in which I think everything they do is right, but that person doesn't think everything I'm saying is right. We need to get back to the place where we can disagree and still accept each other. We've got to get back, back, back to Jesus and keep the main thing the main thing. So whatever questions come up, like I said, about sin, about is this or that a sin, we can answer it, but we don't want to get wrapped around the axle defining this and that. The other thing, the issue is, uh, I certainly don't want to come across pointing my finger at this person and saying, you are a sinner. I certainly want to come across, because in my heart I feel this, I want to come across with my arms open saying, we are in need of forgiveness. And God is so good that he has provided that forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We both need that. It's not just that this person needs that, we both need that. We want to share that warmly, personally, and humbly. But at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is the savior of sinners. And at the end of the day, Christianity is a rescue religion. At the end of the day, Christianity is not a moral program. Christianity is a rescue. And it declares that God has taken the initiative in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sins. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. This is what we want to keep coming back to. We want to bring it back, back, back to Jesus because all of us need forgiveness. You don't need to argue about philosophy because after all, evangelism is not giving information about everything. Evangelism is giving an introduction to the one who is everything. Bring it back to Jesus. And Jesus, this is the sweetest part of all. When we're bringing it back to Jesus, we're bringing it back to the, to, to the most dazzling one that there is. Last week, I got back down from my shelf because I was getting ready for this lecture I was going to give, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, still worth reading. And, uh, 
an overlooked book by John Stott called Basic Christianity. Really still worth reading. It's a good little book. And Stott says in that book, he has a couple chapters about the beauty of Jesus, and he says something to the effect of when it, when it comes to Jesus, what's amazing is that Jesus himself claimed always to be divine, and Jesus himself never stood on his dignity. Jesus claimed to be worthy of being worshipped by everyone. But every time Jesus met anyone, he served them. He loved them. It's as if in, it's as if in uh, thought and concept, Jesus puts himself first as God. But in attitude and action, he's always putting himself last and serving us. He knows himself to be Lord of all, and yet he serves all. And at the end of his life, when he gives his back to be flogged, and he gives his face to be spit upon, what he cries out is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Stott ends that chapter on Jesus by saying, such a man is altogether beyond our reach. And such a man is the only one who can reach us. Jesus is that kind of savior. And he's so worthy. He's so worthy of taking on a couple of awkward questions of navigating through a couple of hurt feelings because he's Jesus and he's the savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all glory and honor and power. We bow before you. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that as we go from this place, you would give us compassion and gentleness Lord Jesus, we ask as we go from this place, you'd give us confidence and clarity on your truth. Lord Jesus, we, we confess that we, uh, we haven't lived for you as we ought. We haven't witnessed for you as we ought. Knowing your forgiveness we ask now for your empowerment that we might know the joy of serving you in these ways. And we ask for our family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, that we might be enabled to share you with them and see them move from death to life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.